right. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. Y'all can go ahead and head that way. And the rest of you, let me invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought one with you, to uh, John chapter 17, whether uh, on your device or uh, one of the old school carrying the leather-bound thing around with you. Um, John chapter 17. And this is the last sermon we'll do on John 17. This is really, I guess, part three. I had intended to do all this in one sermon a couple weeks ago and um, just got a little carried away. So uh, this is part two of that. Uh, Jason actually uh, preached a phenomenal message um, last week on, on prayer. And I just love even the heart of this prayer, even in the song we just sang, that God's a good father. That's one of the main things that Jesus is trying to pray uh, for his followers is that we would understand our identity as dearly loved kids, that he loves us and he is such a good father to us. So this will be another sermon on prayer. And um, the disciples knew that, Je- that, the, that the life of Jesus, that the secret to his victory in public came through his devotion and private. It came through a life of prayer. It was no mistake. Jesus made time for it. Jesus emphasized it. Jesus was a man of prayer. And not just the little thank you for our food kind of prayers. You know, Hebrews, I read this this week. I had never heard this. Hebrews talks about the nature in which Jesus prayed. The Gospels tell us that he prayed. And we've got this one phenomenal picture in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll get to um, starting even here uh, next week as we head to the cross over the next couple weeks through the end of John's Gospel. But, but on more than one occasion, in Hebrews 5-7, I don't have this on the screen because I, I was... Just reading this this week, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. And it tells us the kind of prayers that Jesus offered up. He offered up prayer and petition with fervent cries and tears. With fervent cries and tears. And I guess it just kind of struck my heart this week as I was reading this. It's Luke, do you pray like this? With fervent cries and tears, it says that Jesus prayed. One author in a book I read a decade or more ago called Let the Nations Be Glad diagnosed the weak in prayer life of most believers like this. I think... I don't have this on the screen. I want you to listen to it, though. Probably the number one reason that prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn our wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. But what have millions of Christians done, he goes on? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. There's no urgency in our lives. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. There's no strategic planning. Just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We've tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and our boats and our cars. Not to call for firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts and cushions in the den. 
the disciples saw Jesus' prayer life. And they saw him crying out to the Father in cries, in fervent cries and tears. And this is why they go to him and even ask, Lord, teach us to pray. They knew that they could never further the mission without it. The definition of prayer is us simply communicating with God, but the nature and posture of it, I think, is closer to this wartime walkie-talkie where you're in the foxhole and the enemy surrounds you and you're calling in air support. So today we're going to look at John 17 again. Historically, this passage... um, Historically, this passage is not known as the Lord's Prayer, although it is actually the Lord's Prayer. The one that most people call the Lord's Prayer that you probably learned and maybe memorized in Matthew 6 is really the model prayer. Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray as they ask, teach us to pray. But this is actually his prayer, and it's the last prayer that we have recorded on the last night of his life. And I believe it's something that we should be praying every night of our life. And to simplify it so we could remember it. Remember last week Jason talked about uh, top of mind awareness? That we have a, a mental and even muscle memory to do things in the lull of life. That when our, when our mind is on hum, what are we thinking about? And this is where we want to reconnect with communicating with our Father God. So to simplify this, praying up, in, and out was a practice that... Christians have done for a very long time and you see all three of these as Jesus is praying here in John 17 praying up again we covered this a few weeks ago as Jesus talks to his father it says in uh, verse 1 when Jesus spoke these words he lifted his eyes to heaven and said father the hour has come glorify your son that the father may glorify you praying up and you see this awfully personal way that Jesus prayed to the Father. He prayed up. He called him our Father. You, you, you know, there's a, there's a different way you talk to someone you know very well than someone that you just meet. There's a different way you talk to your mom than you do the, you know, the person, you know, the cashier at Brookshire's. There, there's even a different way <clears throat> that you talk on your first date than you do you know, after you've been married for a couple years or a couple decades. Hopefully your first date doesn't start off with you walking through the living room in your underwear and drinking, you know, milk from the carton. Hopefully it doesn't start that way. Hopefully like your first, your first date, you, you know, my mom always told me don't eat spaghetti on your first date, right? Because you're gonna make a mess of yourself. There's certain rules that you do as you meet someone and try to impress them. And in this passage, we see Jesus praying to the Father in this deeply personal cry. Praying up. And then the direction of praying in. If you'll go down to verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And then verse 11. 
Sorry, my voice is... Verse 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Praying in. Let's look at the praying in direction. The bulk of Jesus' prayer in John 17, he spends here. He's thinking specifically about the 12 disciples minus Judas. You see in verse 12 that he excludes Judas because he knows Judas was going to betray him. But he spends the majority of his prayer praying this, praying for those that have come before that have chosen to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, the best application to this is probably your missional community or your small group or the four to six people in your life that you pray intimately for and daily for. The people who know uh, your struggles and you know theirs. The people who know your temptations. The people who know your blind spots and they know yours. And this is what Jesus is praying for them. And before we look at actually what he's praying for, can I just quickly say something about the importance here of real Christian friends? Christian friendship may be the most greatest earthly gift that God gives us. Everyone should have two to three really close friends who know you and love you and love you enough that they pray for you daily. And this is really on my mind because I've had so many friends, and even further than that, we've seen so many pastors high-profile pastors who have fallen out of ministry recently, and they all had this one thing in common, that they were isolated. Proverbs 18.1 warns us about an isolated man. It says, an isolated man seeks his own desire and rages against all sound judgments. Friends, you need really close Christian friends, not just the kind that know when your birthday is, the kind that know what your weakness is, the kind in which you don't have to pose or posture, the kind that you can call and say, I'm having a really rough day, temptation is really high, I'm really discouraged. Would you pray with me? Would you labor with me? Even this week, I got a text from a little group of uh, friends of mine praying for a friend that used to go to church here and said, hey, can we fast and pray tomorrow for our friend who is sick? You need a few really close relationships where you have invited them to give you the last 2% of truth that we often withhold because we don't want to anger you. You need those kind of Christian friends. Things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutant. So Jesus prays for these friends, his friends. In verse 6, Jesus says, I've manifested your name, Father, to the people that you gave me out of the world. They're yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now that, now they know everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the true in truth that I came from you and that they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them Jesus prays for them and certainly he's praying for his disciples that are around him Peter James and John and Matthew and Thaddeus and the rest of the crew he's praying for them 
He's praying for the woman at the well that he had met, remember, as her life had been transformed and she had gone back into that Samaritan village and brought the gospel and all those people came to faith. He's praying for them and he's praying for Nicodemus. You remember him in John 3, maybe that he wouldn't be a secret disciple anymore and because he feared man, he's praying for the official from Herod's place who had the incredible faith, you remember that, and his son was healed or the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida, Bethsaida for the little kid and the fish and who used the loaves to feed the 5,000 or the forgiven woman, if you remember her, and caught in adultery where he told her, go and sin no more. For the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, who Jesus healed, and he had this incredible story of God's redemption in his own life as he encountered Jesus. And he's praying for his friends from Bethany, for Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, and Mary of Bethany, and Martha, who oftentimes gets a pretty bad rap. But he prays two specific things for them. And I, I want to I look at these as we're praying in, as we're praying for our people. Just in my own natural, normal life, I, I normally start praying up in the mornings. And I just, you enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And I thank him for what he's done. And I just, I adore him and I worship him. This is what my mornings normally are for. And my evenings when I lay my head on the pillow, this is the end. This is what I go through. I pray for my family. And I know my kids, and I know the enemy, is, the enemy is set to destroy them in any way he can. And I pray for my wife. The enemy wants to destroy her and wants to wreck our marriage. And I pray for those brothers that are in, in my little DG. We fight this good fight of faith together. And I pray for my MC. I pray for our staff. And I, just, just those in, I pray for my extended family. And normally during the, the lunch hours when I really pray out. But do you see Jesus is praying in right here? He says in verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. In verse 15, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one who's in the world. So what is he praying? He's not praying that these believers would be taken out of the world, that they're going to be saved and safe and sanctified in some desert community somewhere away from the world. No, no, no. He prays that they would be kept by the power of God while in the world. There's this warped version of Christianity that seeks to remove itself from the world, that believes that isolation is the only way to avoid corruption. And maybe you've heard this, and there's pockets of this all around guilty or sinful by association. I can't interact with this person because this person is sponsored by this person and that sponsor has a mother company who has declared a war on Christianity. But that's not what God prays. God doesn't pray, Lord, as, as they have been saved, can you remove them from the world? No, he doesn't say that. He prays that they would be kept by the power of God in the world. God's heart for you is not that you'd be removed from the world. True discipleship is not isolation from the world. As Jesus even says here, it's living like Jesus in the world. Our mission is not to disinfect the Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and to put them back into service so they can let the light shine. Even Jesus says no one takes a light and hides it under a basket. 
No, that would be ridiculous. And then he would say, you are the light of the world. You are the city on top of a hill. Go and let your light shine before men. So they would see it and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Because what happens when you remove yourself from the world? You lose your evangelistic witness, which is the very reason that God leaves us on earth. If this was not our purpose, to glorify God so that the very ends of the earth would hear this beauty of the gospel and be reconciled back to God through the person of Jesus as he dealt with their sins on the cross. If it wasn't for that, that the moment that we chose to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, we would be beamed up to heaven immediately. I mean, why not? Because in heaven we can worship better. In heaven we know fully. We have no sin to break fellowship with each other. But we've been left here as a witness. Let me ask you this. Do you know people outside the church and are you engaged actively in their life? Can you speak the language of culture? Have you learned the gospel language to such an extent that you can speak the gospel into dark places? Most churches become part of this inbred subculture that only knows how to talk with each other and no one else on the outside. And that is, is just not the point of the gospel. The main accusations that the Pharisees would throw at Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. He prays that they would be kept by the power of God in the world. And then the second thing he prays for them is that they would be sanctified. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As, as, verse 18, as you have sent me in the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This word sanctified, used a couple times here, just means set apart. It just means altogether different. It means countercultural. Paul, the Apostle Paul would use the word alien. It just, they just look like they were just, just, just so strange and different. And this is not the call for us to be just super weird people. Now, some of us are that. This is not the call for us to be super weird. This is the call for us to march to the beat of a drummer that the world cannot hear. For us to make paradigm-shifting decisions. This is what he prays for them, that they would be sanctified. Jesus wanted us in the world, but he didn't want us to be shaped by the world. Well, how do we develop a holy heart and life within the world? Jason talked on this at length last week, and we're just going to touch on it today. But by knowing God's word. We saw this in the temptation of Jesus. Every time the enemy came, he used the word of God to tempt Jesus. But Jesus knew the word of God better than the enemy knew the word of God. And he certainly knew the spirit of God far greater than the enemy knew the spirit of God. And so Jesus was able to respond to a temptation, a twisting of the truth from the word of God with with the actual truth from God's word. This is how we're sanctified, by knowing the word of God. The greatest way to avoid a lie, after all, is to know the truth. 
your success in this world spiritually and the success of your kids will not be based on how well you isolate them from the lies, but in how much they know and are engaged with the truth. Do you want your life to be a success? Do you want it to be founded on the rock? Do you want to be wise and avoid the deceptions of the enemy? Of course you do. Do you want your kids' lives to be a success? Parents, listen to me for a second. Let me challenge you. Then you've got to form the word of God into the lives of your kids. Not just as a duty, but as a delight. Not just as something that they do, but you don't. But out of the overflow of your life, they see you model this thing for them. That you love the word of God. That you make it a priority to learn the word of God. That when the word of God brings repentance, that you share a lot of that with your family. That you, your family, your whole family sits under the authority of God's word. And it carries more weight than anything, than your feelings and your desires, than, than even your work schedule. That the word of God carries the greatest weight in your life. Parents, culture is trying to disciple our kids. And the prevailing ideals of their time. But, but, listen, don't kid yourself, friends. We are at war. And we have convinced ourselves that we're not. That it's all about pleasure stacking. It's all about the greatest comfort. It's all about making sure our kids have these great experiences. I love the experiences. But I don't want to raise a well-rounded with great memories Children that don't know the word of God and don't know that we're in war and don't know that prayers are wartime walkie-talkie. The world is trying to disciple your kids and the prevailing ideas. They're actually anti-Christian. And if you don't have an intentional plan, please, this is not me fussing, this is me pleading with you as a desperate parent. Pleading with you to have an intentional plan for discipling your kids. And if you don't have that plan, the world will gladly snatch them up. Don't let that happen. Dad, you got to lead the way here. Now, I am far from perfect. My family's in the room. Dad, you got to lead the way in discipling your kids, memorizing Scripture as a family. What are you memorizing? What are you learning? How are you hiding the Word of God in your hearts? Doing devotions. Maybe once your kids are old enough, let them lead. Let them understand. Let them take part in it. Just this week, I was so convicted about this very thing. It's just so easy for life to get so busy. And you know what the first thing to go is? This is no mistake by the enemy. This is his intentional plan. I'm going to make you busy. So you're going to stop forming the word of God's in the lives of your children so that when I come along, when there's already this like separation thing, when they're in their adolescence, when they're 12, 13, 14, and they're pushing against all, pushing back against all authority, I'm going to come in just like the serpent did with Eve. And I'm going to convince them that God doesn't know what he's talking about and your parents don't know what he's talking about. And instead you should listen to some bozo on Instagram and let him form your whole life. You've got to teach them the truth so that they can know the lie when the lie comes. We've talked about this a lot. I involve my kids in the programs here at the church. 
They need second voices in their lives. Our youth ministry's done a great job at this. Our children's ministry, I just love, my, 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 my older two are actually back there serving in kids. They serve once a month back there, a lot of our teenagers do. And they're actively participating in teaching the word of God to those that are younger. Do you see this built-in discipleship thing happening? And I love it. They, I pray that my kids know the word of God and they love the word of God. And it's not just something that they see dad talk about. They see something in their mom and dad that we love the word of God. Listen, again, the world is trying to suck this opportunity to impact their opportunity to learn God's word. My kids love sports. Claire's been dying to join travel soccer. She says that she's not in here, right? She, she, she's asked me every, I mean, two or three times a week. Sees me in a weak spot. I'm tired on the couch. She brings me a cold 7-Up with ice in it. Hey, Dad, what do you think about the idea of us being travel soccer? I say, baby, I love you, and that's a great opportunity. But in order for you to do that, you're going to have to sacrifice learning God's word in the faith community. And we are never going to be willing to make that sacrifice. I am not going to allow them for other things to negatively impact their opportunity to learn God's word. It's unlikely they'll ever play a professional sport or dance or run for a living. It is 100% likely, parents, that they're going to go to heaven or hell one day. 100%. So I'm going to make sure they're prepared for that. And I'm also going to make sure, 100% sure, that we are going to follow after Matthew 6.33, that we're going to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Are we seeking first the kingdom of God in our finances, in our time, in our calendar, in our devotion? So dad, moms, how are you set apart? This is Jesus' prayer for you, that you would be sanctified by the truth in the world, but living like Jesus. He prays in and he prays out. Up and out, he prays out. In his final prayer, Jesus prayed for his church, the church to come, those who had yet believed. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. Will believe through their word. That's you and me and everyone who would one day believe. And I just, I read this this week and this hit me in the gut again. That, that Jesus, on this crazy night of his life, he's about to go to the garden. And he's going to be falsely accused. He's going to pray. I mean, uh, tears of sweat and blood's going to be coming out of his pores. He's going to go to the cross alone. He's going to be condemned and rejected and crucified for me. And the evening before all that's to happen, where do we find Jesus? We find Jesus in John 17 praying for you and for me. <clears throat> Verse 21, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We're almost out of time, but I want you to see this one dominant thing from this section is that Jesus prays that you and I would internalize and externalize God's love. 
breathing in the love of God, breathing in his grace and his mercy and our identity as dearly loved sons and daughters of the creator God. We're breathing in those things and then we're exhaling the love and grace and mercy and blessing of God on everybody that we come in contact with. He's praying that we would love Jesus the way God loves Jesus. To love Jesus the way that God loves Jesus. In verse 20, I ask not these only, but also for those who are going to believe through the word. Verse 21, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you love them, look at this, and you love them even as you loved me. Just take a second and just inhale the love of God on you. That God love you to that extent. That we would understand. Jesus is praying that the love of Jesus that we would understand the love of Jesus, the way that God loves Jesus, the same way that the Father loves us. And second, that we would love others just like Jesus loves us. I in them. Because when we do that, people will know that he is real. How does the world know that God is real? By how well I preach? Absolutely not. By how loudly you worship? <clears throat> We'd be in trouble. <clears throat> By miraculous answers to prayer? No. By how we all vote? No. How, how, how does the world know that the creator God, the God of the Bible is real? What does it say? By how well you love each other. The passage that we read out of Corinthians every year, the love chapter, is not about a husband and wife. Although it should certainly be true. It's about people in a local church loving each other. And it's about the people in this local church of Jesus Christ loving those that are the church that meets three miles down the road that we love them the same way. That's the kind of love that he's talking about. How does the world know that God's real? What is the greatest apologetic of the world today? How you love. How you love each other. How you love people who are different from you. How you love people who've got different opinions than you. How you love people. This love shows itself really in two primary ways. One, how well we love our community, the last, the lost, and the least. This is the drum we're beating up here all the time about serving the hub. Listen, there is something spectacular about the poor. They're one of the greatest gifts that God has given. As we serve the poor, Jesus says, it's, you know, you, you, you've served, you know, that time when you handed a cup of cold water in my name. You did it even as unto me when we serve the poor, when we take in foster children, when we love prisoners, when we serve the refugees, when we befriend political enemies, when we make the invisible Jesus visible by our love for them. Well, what are you here to do? I'm just here to love and serve you, man. Second way that this really shows itself It's through the unity in Jesus that we would be a unified people. That the unity 
in Jesus is stronger than anything that could divide us. Again, in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may, send, may know you sent me. He says this five times this passage, so that the world may know that you sent me, that they would love each other so the world may know you sent me, that, that they would be unified so that the world may know you sent me, that they'd be perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. Church, we are made for this moment in a culture that's more divisive than ever. What is supposed to happen when the church becomes who she's called to be, that every tribe and nation and tongue and neighborhood and political persuasion are all united together underneath the banner of Jesus? That's when, the, that's when you don't have to invite people to a local gathering anymore. They sniffing it out. What in the world is going over there at your church? You can have Democrats and Republicans worshiping together, pro-Trump and pro-Biden people worshiping together, people who support the vaccine or against the vaccine, they're worshiping together, people who are pro-mask and anti-mask, wait, they're sitting on the front row worshiping together. How in the world could that happen? Only underneath the unifying factor of Jesus. In church, we've got to be kidding. We are playing games by drawing all these divisions within the church. That's why the Christianity in America is declining faster than it's ever declined. Christian sociologists and studies say there's no way to come back for it except for a supernatural move of God. For decades we thought, well, if we can just train the dads to disciple their kids a little better, if we can evangelize a little bit better, if we can train everyone to go reach someone, we can do it better and we can turn the tide of the decreasing church in America. But now they say there's no hope. There is no hope. America has become anti-Christian. This is where we're at. Buckle up, friends. This is where we're going. If you needed to train your kids to know the difference between a truth and a lie ever before, you got to do it now. Why? Why is Christianity decreasing? Because we show up and we sing and we talk about one thing on Sunday morning and that rule of life does not govern the way we live the rest of the week. We say, oh, Jesus, you're the bread of life, you're the bread of life. And then we look for bread everywhere else the rest of the week. We come on Sunday, oh, Jesus, you are the living water. Give me that living water. And then the rest of the week, we just, we just look for water everywhere else. The church was set up for this moment. And I tell you the truth, some of the other, some other countries, especially those that are oppressed, have gotten this right. During the pandemic, the Christian church around the world is actually growing, and it's growing exponentially. Because people decided to put their preferences and their opinions aside and under the one banner of Jesus. You know what unifies us all? I love that Jesus even did this on his disciples. I've told you this before. That, that Jesus, even on, on, on his team, he put Simon the Zealot, who was like, let's, let's, let's fight Rome. I mean, this dude is ready to fight all the time. Simon, I mean, he's got the sword with him. He's sharpening it every day, just like throwing darts at, the, at Caesar, a picture of Caesar. He just, man, he just, let's take him down, Jesus. He's probably the one that started the whole thing. Hey, let's smite them. Jesus, can you rain down fire from heaven and just burn them all to a crisp and then usher your kingdom in right then? And then you got Matthew, the tax collector. In Simon's eyes, he was a sellout. He started actually working for the government to oppress his very own people. And Jesus says, you know what this great idea is? I'm not going to pick all the same kind of political-leaning people or these ideas. You know, I'm going to put people who hate each other on earth, and I'm going to put them both on my team. And they're going to be able to sit around that supper together. 
because they're unified under one name, Jesus, and one mission, the Great Commission. Friends, as best I can, I refuse to let opinions on any secondary issue separate me from those who love Jesus or inhibit my ability to demonstrate the gospel to those who don't. Like I've told many of you, I might be wrong about the vaccine or about the mask or even the Dallas Cowboys, but I am not wrong. Listen, I am not wrong about the gospel. And I refuse to let the way that I hold my opinions about the lesser former things keep you from hearing me on the latter, the most important and ultimate things. And we should all arrange our lives in the very same way. Disunity in the church happens not because we care about politics too much, but, but, but because we care about Jesus too little. About five times again in this little prayer, he says, Jesus says, so that the world may know. Lord, Father, I pray that they learn to love each other the way that you love me and I love you back and the way that I love them. I pray that they love each other to that extent. Father, I pray for them. You would sanctify them in the truth that they would be one, that they would be perfectly one. Do you know how this little band of fishermen and tax collectors following Jesus in just a few centuries overtakes all of Rome? Can you imagine the power of Rome reaching down, just trying to squish this, this little son of a Jewish carpenter that's trying to raise up and start this new thing? And all the power of all the Caesars couldn't do it. You know how it happened? This little band of <clears throat> nobodies were somebody in the kingdom of heaven. And they began to submit their lives to the authority of Jesus. They began to love each other radically. Secular historians tell us about this. The four things that really stand out as you look through all of Christendom. What, what were the things? Was it their worship? Did they just have killer worship? Was it their preaching? Did they, was it the smoke and the lights? Was it the, was it the cruise? What did they do? What did they do that would change the entire nation from persecuting and sticking Christians on poles and lighting them on fire to light up the parties? to nearly the entire empire of Rome kneeling at the feet of Jesus. What would happen in just a couple hundred years? It wasn't their strategies. It wasn't their giving campaigns. It was really four things historians tell us. One, it was their sex, sexual ethic. In a day where the, there was no sexual ethic, you could do whatever you want anywhere you wanted. There was little prostitution, hostile, everywhere you would go, at every corner, and that's just how everybody lived. And so when Christianity came and said, you know, I'm going to take this sexual ethic and I'm going to save it for my husband, I'm going to save it for my wife, it was so radical through their, through their sexual ethic, through their generosity. Their culture meant they were a stingy culture. You just saved every little nickel and dime that you could. You're already taxed at over 50% if you live under Roman rule. But no, the church started giving their money away, radically giving their money away. It was the way they cared for the last, the lost, and the least. This is what actually is written about most in secular historians. The way they cared for the sick when there was a plague, and there's many of them mentioned throughout all of history. Everyone would run to the hills so they could get away from the, from the virus that was killing everyone. They would all literally run to the hills except for the Christians. They would set up 
contraflow as it would on their camels, getting out of town, getting out of town. And there's just a few little determined Christians heading upstream, headed back to town, often to give their own lives by, by contracting the disease that they're there to serve. But that made so much impact on those people, it began to say, well, maybe, maybe this is not just religious talk. Maybe there's something they really believe. And the fourth was their unity. And this was just the craziest thing that you could own people and property in that day, mostly indentured servants. And at work, you were someone's servant, but in the church, because that servant's an elder, he's your spiritual authority. And they would willingly submit to that. Isn't that the craziest thing? That they would come together, every tribe and, and nation and tongue, and they would worship the Lord God together under the banner of Jesus. And those four things set the sails for the Holy Spirit to blow in such a radical way that the Roman Empire fell to its knees and came to Christ. John 13, 35, in his final discourse, Jesus gave to his disciples, he said, by this all men will know you're my disciples by how you love each other. How you love and forgive and forbear and serve each other and refuse to be divided from each other. Covenant, again, if we did this, we wouldn't have to have impact Sundays. We wouldn't have to have big events. Not that, not that we have many of those anyway. Inviting people in. People would be beating down our doors to come and see what's going on inside this. Who is this powerful, invisible superhero that fills and empowers your church? And then we could tell them about Jesus. Interestingly, uh, this week I read a study that asked people, why do you come back to a church that you visited? Why do you come back a second time? And the answer wasn't the music. It wasn't the preaching. You know what it was? It was whether or not they felt loved. It's like Jesus knew what he was talking about, isn't it? Let me wrap this up. If Jesus was praying for these things on the last night of his life, we ought to be praying for these things every night of our life. And just as Jason told us to set the 18 alarms last week or whatever it was, to, we'd begin to pray. Listen, we need something to remind us. Because our bent, maybe a few of us in here that are just incredible prayer warriors, I know who you are. And when you, when you seem to pray, listen, the, 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 the things shift. But for most of us, we've not cultivated that muscle of prayer. We've not cultivated that discipline of prayer. We need reminders We've asked the whole church to set an alarm for 307 to pray for spiritual renewal out of, out of Ezekiel 37. Maybe you need to set three more alarms on your phone to pray up, to pray in, to pray out. Friends, whatever it takes, sharpening this weapon is one of the greatest disciplines that you could do. This is the time, church. We're either going to be people of intercession or we're going to become people of irrelevance. To help you, I gave you a little Oikos card. You've seen that before. It's in your little connection guide when you walked in. If you didn't get one, no big deal. Just write a couple of names on your phone. Specifically in the in and out that we've talked about today, who's on that end list and who are you praying for? Not just your kids in general that have a good day at school. What are you really praying for for your kids? What are, what are they prone to listen to the enemy's lies? Where Maybe there's some friends in them that are speaking non-truths into them, speaking lies to them. 
Specific ways you're praying for your kids. Specific ways you're praying for your extended family. Specific ways you're praying for those in your discipleship group or your missional community. Those are the end prayers. I encourage you to have a list of those. I think there's a place on the back of there. I think it says purposeful. Maybe those, that'd be a few you would write there, write them in your phone. And then the out. Who are you praying for out? Where has your life and someone else's life intersected and you think it's happenstance, but God's actually planted you there? Your neighbors, your coworkers. How can you pray for them? If you don't make a plan to do it, you're not going to do it. The couple that Jamie talked about earlier, the missionaries in Southeast Asia, they were actually here a couple years ago. And I'm, Jamie, I'm sure you remember this, but it really boggled my mind. They're on stage and, you know, somebody asked what's the best way that, that, that we could help them because not many of us are going to f- fly three or four days uh, over to their part of the world. And he said, the best way you can help us is to pray for us. You remember that? I asked him about that when we, went to, when we went out to eat later. I was like, really? Better than anything else? And he's like, yeah, you know, your money is like a little airsoft gun. And it's helpful, and it might scare the enemy a little bit. But your prayers are like an intergalactic nuclear missile. That's what dispels the darkness. I'm going to give you some minutes to pray here in a moment. We're going to take communion too. I'm going to set that up for us now. But in the moment, you can fill out your card. Or you just listen to the Holy Spirit prompting you of who you can be praying for. This practice of communion is such a gift to us. The Lord Jesus says, when you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And I want you to remember as you take communion today, I want you to remember the love of God. Jesus said out of his own mouth, greater love is no man than this, than he laid out his life for his friends. And he did just that. So when you take the bread and you eat it, you remember the body of Jesus and the juice and you drink it, you remember the blood shed for your sins. You breathe in the love of God through the practice of communion. And then we're going to breathe out the love of God through our prayers in those dimensions of up, in, and out. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Lord, if if I can be honest and vulnerable, as, as I've certainly been with you I've, in not a legalistic condemning way but Father I've I've let my guard down I'm using prayer more like a domestic intercom in the house calling for more treats in the living room as Piper said instead of the wartime walkie-talkie. God, I pray for our kiddos. Can't imagine what it's like being a kid these days. But Lord, you knew this day would come and you prayed for them. Not that they would be taken out of the world, which is what I want to do as a parent. I want to isolate them from all the hurt and all the pain and all the lies that they're going to be told and all the ridicule and rejection. Lord, I'm going to isolate them, but that's not what you prayed for them. You prayed that they would be guarded by your power in the world. 
And so, Father, I pray a prayer of release over those kids. Lord, that you would use them like mighty arrows in a warrior's hand. That you would stir up things in their heart, even right now as they're learning and singing about your word, that they would love your word. That they would memorize it and meditate on it. That it would be like salt on their lips as, as, as they speak. It would be the sweet aroma to heaven as they worship. Lord, that you would put deep in their hearts, even right now, praying for my kids and Jason's kids and Adam's kids. Lord, all the kids that are back there, Lord, you start stirring up big dreams in their heart, not just for their vocation, but that they would be excellent at their vocation so that others may know. Lord, I pray for those even in this room. There's some in this room that have been religious a really long time. And they've done all the things trying to earn your favor. And Father, we know we're reminded even in this text, that's not the way it works. Lord, you love us so greatly. I pray that they would take a step of faith today. Step out of darkness and into light. That today would be the day of salvation for many, even in this room. Those that are listening online, God, would you do an incredible thing in their heart and life? But Lord, we need some serious shifts in our own heart where we're not bringing picnic blankets to watch the war. We're suiting up. God, I pray just in the next few moments as we take communion, as we pray even with our spouse at our seats, if your kids are in the room, you might want to huddle them together and pray a prayer of blessing over them. Might be a good idea for you and your spouse to get together this afternoon right after lunch and say, okay, what's our plan? What are we going to teach them? What are we going to memorize? What are we going to be learning? God, we love you. Lord, I pray we become a people of intercession. One hand holding on to yours in heaven and one hand holding on to those that are in the darkness and we're interceding for them. I pray we're a people of intercession and not a people of irrelevance. God, do what you want in our hearts and our lives this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. Communion's open when you want to come. There's no hurry. You'll just take the cup, take it back to your seat, and you can partake just as soon as you get there when you're ready. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion, but you do have to be part of God's family. So whenever you're ready to do that, come on. Phil's going to lead us in a song of worship in a little bit. Take all the time you need. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone, as long as several others that are on our prayer team.